Welcome to the Access VFX podcast. Pursuing inclusion, diversity, awareness and opportunity in VFX, animation and games industries. Hi, I'm Simon Devereaux, founder and director of Access VFX, bringing the visual effects, animation and games industry together, working towards a shared goal to make our industry more diverse and inclusive by taking action rather than just talking about it. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Access VFX podcast. This is episode 38. Um, For this pod, we've gathered black and ethnically diverse members of the visual effects and animation community to put out a recording as a response to current events, namely the death of George Floyd at the hands of the Minnesota Police Department and the subsequent rallies and protests that have erupted globally against police brutality and racism. Access VFX, and it's important that I put this out, is Access VFX was founded on getting stuff done or getting shit done. Um, But that's what we were founded on uh, from day one across all of our action-oriented initiatives. And we'll continue to strive for a truly inclusive creative industry where diverse talent can and will thrive. Those of you that attended our Industry Connect events over the last few years with uh, the mighty We Are Stripes will understand the importance of ethnically diverse role models, or as we like to call it, see it, be it. So for this episode, With everything that's happening at the moment, we felt that it's our duty to talk to our friends and host another Industry Connect. This is ultimately our our fourth Industry Connect in many ways, our first virtual one, but an Industry Connect nonetheless. And um, no different to any of our Industry Connects, it will come as no surprise that our co-host for this episode is uh, Nene Parsotam. We are Stripe's co-founder, Vine Creatives, Executive Creative and Art Director, and of course, Access VFX board member. So Nene, would you like to say a few words? Hi, yes. For those of you who have listened to the um, Access VFX uh, podcast, I've been on a few of them um, lately. And also, as uh, Simon has mentioned, we've worked with Access VFX since its inception. And we have always been about inclusivity, especially in terms of ethnic diversity. Um, so this this podcast is at quite close to my heart and close to the heart of my co-founder Hayden Danner as well say what's up and um, yeah we're gonna just crack on Um, because this is partly a see it be it podcast as we always tend to do in terms of these um, events as it were it would be great if we just went around the the grid as it were and have everyone introduce themselves please and just give us a little bit of an insight into what it is that you do in the industry so we'll start with Prince hello hey uh, my name is Prince Um, I'm currently in my second year uh, as a compositor at Framestore, at Framestore London, but I've been there since 2017, I think, um, doing paint and roto, and then uh, I moved up into the the comp department. Uh, before that, I freelanced for like a year, doing PNR. Uh, I was at DNEG for a few months, but mainly at Milk. Um, so yeah, I've been doing that for for the last couple of years. And um, a compositor, no one shoot me because I know there's a lot of compositors here. If I explain it badly, but we basically just layer images together, combining uh, real life, real life plates or real life videos and stuff that's done in CG, and trying to integrate them together to make them look uh, realistic. Fabulous. Would you like to tell us some of the kind of like really cool projects you have worked on? Those you are allowed to actually mention. Um, the biggest ones. I'm a massive like Marvel nerd, so we got Ooh. to work on all the Marvel stuff. And uh, Infinity War, Endgame, uh, all that was really, really cool. I think that, like, yeah, getting to work on the Marvel stuff has like been the biggest, the biggest stuff for me personally. Fantastic. No, I'm not jealous at all. No, not <laughs> a little bit. Not a little bit. It was um, painful. It was painful, well, but it was, was fun it? as well. <laughs> it must have been amazing. It must have been an amazing yeah, experience, you know, really to be cool. to be part of something that that big. You know, awesome. Yeah, absolutely. 
Fabulous. So Anne, we have Anne next. Go for it, Anne. Hi, um, I'm Anne. I'm a VFX producer and also the central production manager at DNEG. Been at DNEG for coming up to three and a half years now. And before that, I worked in the theme park industry, producing sort of content media for the theme park industry. So roller coasters, basically um, anything you see on those like screens when you go down the roller coaster, kind of produce some of that. Any more of content. So a bit of VR and AR as well, I did. And then before that, I worked at National Space Center doing full dome 4K production um, in Leicester for about three years as well. And before that, way, way before that, um, about 10 years ago, I worked in advertising, sort of producing. I've kind of produced in sort of different areas of creative media, but I've kind of focused in VFX in the last sort of three and a half years. And I've been at DNEG. Um, producing is essentially getting the show done, being the good guy and the bad guy. So sort of, you know, managing the client in terms of budget and schedule, but also managing the artist in terms of creative intent and schedule. So yeah, I, I love what I do. I, I wanted to be an artist when I started, but someone told me to look at producing because I like to organize stuff and 10 years later, I'm still doing it or 11 years later, I'm still doing it. Um, and then as a central production manager, I kind of look at the process for the TV department at DNEG. So looking at sort of processes like how we use shotgun in the, in the department, to how we sort of do our bids and all our sort of um, documents that sort of have to tie in with the different processes in the business, making sure that that's consistent, not just in our site in London, but also across sort of all our sites in Vancouver and in, in, um, in India and so forth. So that's Fabulous. what I do. Fabulous. You mentioned that you've done production over slightly different kind of sectors, as it were. Is there, is there a difference between, say, producing for, uh, for VFX as opposed to producing for, say, advertising? Could you explain the difference? Uh, BFX is a lot more fun than advertising. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, advertising is a, is a lot more fast paced. So, you know, when mm. I was doing advertising, I was doing probably seven projects at the same time in a time period of like four to six weeks, for example. Producing, you're doing like a show for possibly a year sometimes. So, I just finished wow. Alex Garland's devs, and that, you know, I worked on that for like about 14 months. So, it's a lot longer. There's a lot more detail that goes into it. The budgets are bigger. Um, in full dome, for example, producing for that, that's very, it's a very niche industry. So you're doing 4K full dome production. And that's mostly going to be, if you don't have a planetarium, you won't be able to actually see the work. So that's very sort of like okay. bespoke content, very, very niche, mostly kind of educational content for like science um, planetariums and like, you know, like educating about like the universe and stars and, you know, galaxies and things like that. But we also kind of did like bespoke things for clients like Schindler in, in Switzerland. So it's very, very different. Amazing. Um, and budgets are different as well. Yeah, having that distinction is good because uh, in the past we've had people who are producers elsewhere, say in music or advertising, and they will assume that producing in say VFX industry is the same. So it's good to kind of have that yeah. distinction. So no, it's not, no. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> okay, who's up next, uh, Simon? We have Hannah. Hi, um, I'm a look dev supervisor at uh, Blue Zoo Animation Studio. I've been there for, almost five years um, before being a look dev artist, I was a lighting and compositor. Um, and yeah, I just kind of been a blues ever since I graduated. Uh, in terms of what look dev, like what look dev entails, uh, I know it kind of mean different things in different studios, but for us at Blue Zoo, um, it's about, it's in the pre-production stage where we define a look. So for example, whether you want to make a show look like realistic and stop motion, 
other times uh, we may have a show that we want to look uh, like tune, like tune shaders, like comic books. So, you know, you could say like uh, Spider-Verse-esque, you know, sort of exploring different styles and trying to find what the client wants. And sometimes uh, the client doesn't know what they want the look to be. And so we sometimes propose, uh, you know, explore and propose like what style the show, like the 3D show should look like. Oh, fabulous, fabulous. And any cool projects you've worked on recently? Um, to tell us about. <laughs> um, a recent one that got released is uh, Adventures of Paddington. So uh, the uh, 3D series on yeah. like, Nickelodeon that just got released. And um, and I've worked on a few of like uh, Pokemon Go adverts. Um, and yeah, just like a few. Nice, <laughs> nice. So yours is animation based, isn't it? As opposed yeah. to, or is it VFX? But with animation, sorry, again, sometimes it's good to know the distinction. Um, it's um, mainly animation, full animation. Sometimes in the commercial department, we may have like a blend between the two. So for example, for Pokemon Go, it's sort of a live action play, but the characters, you know, um, the Pokemon themselves are 3D, of course. Um, but yeah, mostly it's sort of fully 3D, you could say in the likes of you know, like Pixar and Disney, but more for like uh, children's TV shows. Cool. No, nice. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, Simon, who's next? Who's on your list? Who's on the list? Uh, Michael Morgan. Yeah, my name is Michael Morgan and I've been animating since 2000 from video games to TV commercials. And the last eight years I've been working in visual effects, doing animation for films. And that entails, like, actually I worked with Prince on Tyler. I worked on shows like Tarzan, um, Black Panther, a lot of Marvel films, Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, recently, I was leading on Artemis Fowl for Disney. Nice, yeah. So, um, that hasn't come out yet, but it should be out this month. So yeah, quite a few films, like I said, over the last eight years in visual effects. And that's literally animation is bringing characters to life. So that's what I do. That's amazing. So you've been an animator for like 20 years. Yeah, 20 amazing. years. Amazing. Artemis Fowl comes out next week, by the way. All right. Like, yeah, I've been keeping that. I've been, I've been waiting for that film. I've read the books and Many it's kind of, know. yeah, it's, it's actually quite cool. So I'm interested to see how it is. That's, that's really cool. And I should note Michael yeah. came to our first Industry Connect way back. You did, didn't oh, you, Michael? Did yeah. you? Sorry, we met. Yeah, yeah. I didn't oh, realise yeah. it was the first, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we did have an Industry Connect, but in this space, yeah. it, was the, it was the original stripes kind of access vfx combo so yeah yeah it feels like ages ago honestly was it? Yeah. yeah it was actually fair yeah so, so who's up next though, Simon? Know. i know right uh, so next is Lorraine. hi um my name is uh, larry butta and i'm a digital compositor working at dnec uh, tv and i've been at dnec tv for dnec for last uh, four years about four years even though i got in the industry I started back in 2006. I, when I started, I was the youngest and the only girl back then when I was studying at Escape Studios. And, uh, but I haven't been working consistently because of some uh, personal problems and issues I had. I wasn't able to stay uh, connected to the industry. And also I got married young age and I became a mother. So I had a family. So overall I've had like five, six years gap in my career. Um, but then one, I moved to Barcelona as well after my marriage, but then I got back to London and I have uh, been since then working at DNEG. Um, some of the latest projects I've been involved in, like Altered Carbon, uh, Netflix Altered Carbon, Doctor Who, 
uh, 007, No Time to Die, uh, and Tenet, Christopher Nolan's Tenet is my can't wait. <laughs> Sorry, I can't wait for that. Sorry, sorry, can't wait for that. Sorry, please continue. Sorry. And Fast and Furious. So yeah, I've been um, pretty much as Prince already explained, uh, compositing where you just bring all the assets and different elements together, 3D and 2D elements together. We put them all in the final uh, shot and send it out to our clients. So that's what we as compositors do. What does that mean, sorry, when you say 2D and 3D elements? When you say, if you're working on a film like, say, Tenant, what would be a 2D element and what would be a 3D element? Would the 3D element be um, uh, what's been shot or is it something that you create or whatnot? What does that mean? I'll speak, I'll speak in general about my job, but not any particular, I'm not allowed to speak about any. No, of course, of course. <laughs> I just, just um, trying to explain the concept. It's uh, it 3D because uh, we, the, the work through goes through goes through the pipeline, so it has to go through different animators. You know the layout pro, uh, process. Uh, with 3D animators, uh, a modeler is gonna build, uh, for example, a Godzilla or a monster, and then we have uh, rigging the whole character, and then we have an animator that's gonna animate the character, and then we, as compositors, when we get the live action footage we bring all these 3D elements or even 2D elements like F, not, like uh, different smoke elements, mm. for example, or fire elements that's separately shot and provided to us by clients or we have it in-house. In so we can put them all together and just address what the clients actually want in their final shot. So that's cool. what we do. We just bring everything together and make it more real and photographic looking, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. It's just trying to discern what is like a 2D and 3D. For example, like you said, the smoke or particle effects or whatnot. Yeah, that is yeah. something you would layer. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. cool. All right. Thank you. Thank you. I think, Mark, you're up next. Hello. Hey. So uh, I'm Mark Pinero. Um, I am a filmmaker and uh, visual effects artist, sometimes director and producer uh, when I work through my own company. I have been working in business for 30 years. And wow. I began in 1990, if I quickly run through this without boring you. Um, so I began my filmmaking career uh, being trained by a gay experimental um, avant-garde filmmaker called Paul Bush, who I think is still working today. And then I, in the 90s, spent a lot of time volunteering on film sets, probably about 30 uh, free productions, um, non-paid productions. Probably most notable one would have been <coughs> uh, Idris Elba's first acting job which also involved another producer who's still working today called Io Davis. Um, for money, I worked in the TV studios. My first job was a runner in Soho, and then I moved into television studios. I worked at NBC, MTV, VH1. I ran the libraries there um, for what felt like an eternity. It felt like it was never going to end. Um, so in my downtime at NBC, I, I freelanced. I, I uh, worked as a production assistant with a chap called Greg Burke on a show called The Scene. At VH1, I uh, used my downtime to make a promo for the channel, which went on to win a Promax Award. Um, then uh, at MTV, I was a writer and worked my way up to associate producer. Uh, I left there, and for the last five years of that decade, I worked as an actor which, uh, with a chap called John Rogers and uh, Russell Brand, who you know. And um, we did a lot of political satire under, a, under the name Soapbox Cabaret. And then when all of that, uh, when my life just started to get too poor, I... Uh, tried to get back into filmmaking and retrained in 2000 in digital, uh, digital effects. And I spent most of that decade um, at Escape Studios, um, where I trained up 
the vast majority of people working in the compositing community in London. And I finished that off in around 2010, where I then left as a freelancer. And uh, within a year or so, I was in China and I made and directed my first feature film in China. And then the rest of the decade, I've worked through my own company. And for the last five years, I've pretty much just been freelancing and jobbing around Europe as a gun for hire, working on such productions as Guardians of the Galaxy or Captain Marvel or Game of Thrones, or most recently, along with Larabe, Christopher Nolan's Tenet. Flipping heck. Wow. You haven't really done that much, have you, Mark? Yikes. <laughs> and that wraps up another Access VFX podcast. So you, we finish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> finish. That is amazing. Yeah, amazing. 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 Wow. Good, good work. And how is... Um... No, let's move on. Sorry. Um, who's next? Oh, it's Hayden. Hayden, you're next. You're next. I don't know how I compete with all of that. Yes, exactly, exactly, crazy. It's hard to follow, but I, and I'm not as exciting as you guys. I work in social media, so I'm a social media strategist for the Arts Council um, and also one of the co-founders for We Are Stripes. Um, I've been doing social media probably professionally for about six or seven years. Um, before that, I was in music, um, worked, worked to, went to Glastonbury, formed the Glastonbury um, Camden Crew, um, been to South by Southwest. Um, all, all kinds of things like that. Um, and now, fundamentally, it's, I'm positively about trying to change the narrative and trying to create a new direction for Black, Asian, minority, ethnic people. So that's kind of my my biggest drive in life right now, if I'm honest with you. And my day job at the Arts Council, where I'm a social media strategist. Now, um, Hayden kind of like plays himself down. He's an absolute ideas ninja. Honestly, he's so good. He comes up with our campaigns and our strategies and everything else. He's absolutely brilliant at what at what he does and like a like a pillar of uh, stripes. Honestly, so yes, awesome. Thank you, thank you, thank you, sir. Thank you. Right, uh, Simon, who do we have next? Over to Kenny. Uh, hey, um, I'm Kenny. Kenny Ade. Um, I am a motion designer. Uh, and I've been doing it for about, I want to say like eight-ish years now. Uh, I first started as uh, an intern at a really small studio in West London, really close to where I, where I grew up. And uh, after, after a year, about a year of doing that, I thought, you know what, I think, I'm, I think I can do this. I think I can do this. So I went freelance for the first year. It scared me completely. <laughs> so I went into a full-time role for another really small studio. And that was kind of where I got into Soho in general and like the whole environment of the uh, creative scene in Soho. Uh, I continued working as a motion designer there, but that was where I kind of worked on a lot more editing. So as well as being a motion designer, I'm also like an editor and an illustrator. And I do do kind of dabble in other things as well. Um, But after doing four years of that small studio, I went freelance again. Um, And then an opportunity kind of came up uh, with uh, joining a bigger studio, which I was really interested in joining for a long time, which was the mill. So I joined the mill. Uh, I stayed there for almost three years, and only recently, I think it was just the start of this year, February this year, I left the mill to go freelance again. Wow. Uh, so yeah, so I'm freelance now. Fabulous. That mm-hmm. gives you a lot of rich experience, isn't it, when you're yes. freelancers? Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. A lot. Yeah. Especially yeah, you know, <laughs> especially <laughs> when you're going around. And, you know, you do, because uh, I was being a freelancer as a motion designer and an editor as well. So it was interesting to see, you know, the types of briefs you would be given and the types of, I guess, what types of clients you would get for editing and for, and for illustration and for motion design as well. 
That's right. Yeah. And how different some agencies or companies were and then how similar they were as yes. well. You know, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, my, my freelance career was about 10 years, which I actually loved. I did like it, but yeah, it had its own uh, challenges. We can yeah. hear about them later on. Yeah. Um, is it Sinead? Sinead, picking up next. Did I say your name right? Yeah. Yeah, Sinead. Awesome. <laughs> um, hi, I'm Sinead. I currently work at Escape Studios, which is part of Pearson College London. I uh, work in the marketing department. I've been working there for a year now, um, but I also studied there and graduated in May uh, last year uh, from the visual effects course. So that's kind of briefly what I do. It's not, I'm not an artist or anything, but um, I do really like the visual effects industry. I didn't want to leave the industry, so I thought uh, where my strengths lie um, are more in a marketing department. So, yeah. Awesome, awesome. Uh, Pei, lovely Pei myself. Hello, yeah. um, I'm Pimpi Aliou and I'm currently a concept artist at Industrial Light and Magic, or ILM as we're known. Um, I've been at the company now for four years officially as of last month and I started there as work experience which I did um, for a week and then came back to the company as a runner and then from there moved on to be in the art assistant role and then from there moved up to be um, now a concept artist. So it's kind of I've kind of gone through um, all stages um, so far and um, pretty much whilst I've been there. And in terms of concept art as a role, um, at least how we work at ILM, um, we work at all stages of the production pipeline. So we work in pre-production, production and then post-production. And so we will usually be the people that, the art department will be the people that design um, the environments, um, characters, creatures, kind of anything that anything that has a look to it, and um, we will be asked to design that, um, especially during the early stages of the production. We'll come back for post-production as well if, if we're working on something that's like a magic effect and the effect supervisor's got a specific look in mind or there are any changes that are done to like characters' environments, then um, they tend to come back to the art department and that'll be something that we also work on to basically get the look and the feel right for what's needed for the picture and also to get across the ideas of what the director's looking for. Amazing, amazing. So you start right at the beginning of a project, isn't it, um, Bimpe? Yes. yes, pretty much. So there are times where, um, so for Aladdin, for example, we were working on that at least a year before um, it came into the studio and then by the end of the production, um, by the time the film was released, um, we've been working on it as an art department for about two years, wow. nearly, nearly two and a half years. Obviously, it just depends on how long a production's running for, but yeah. Yeah, because I think people don't realise that there is actually a department that has to look after look, look after the look and feel of a... Oh, yes. Yes, especially, especially if it's heavily conceptual, like, I don't know, like Blade Runner or, or whatnot. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> don't just pull ideas out of the air. They have to be created, isn't it? Yeah, and that can be a really, that can be a long-term process. Like you can be working on a character, a creature design all the way from the beginning right until the very end. Um, those kind of ideas, a lot of those ideas are changing and fluctuating quite frequently or some just stay as they are. Um, some directors come in and have a completely firm idea of what it is that they want and what they're looking for and we kind of like run with that or sometimes that changes as the production goes on. Um, sometimes we can be quite influential in terms of um, the overall story. Again, a director may come in and they know exactly what's going to be happening in sequences or sometimes they may look to us or ask us okay well I know what the A and the Z is going to look like but 
um, there's still scope for what might happen in the in-between. Wow. Um, there's going to be a sequence where a dinosaur is, being, is chasing a human. What will that sequence look like? What will these people be interacting with whilst they're being chased by the dinosaur? What kind of elements can be added in to make the story work? Gotcha, gotcha. So it's like an, it is an ongoing process, isn't it? Just like you yeah. said, isn't it? You don't just finish once you've done and it's like all through the movie right up to post-production. Uh, yeah, pretty much. And it's highly collaborative. Like we work with, although we sit slightly outside of the pipeline, yeah. um, we still work very heavily else with everybody else within the pipeline. So we still work with effects, we still work with compositors, we still work with modelers. A lot of the times we're sharing assets between each other. Mm-hmm. There are definitely some departments that we may not be connecting with as much, um, like lighters, but that's just due to um, what assets we tend to need to be sharing between each other. That's right. Awesome. Thank you, Bimpe. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, finally, Louise, tell us what you do. Um, so I've just basically finished uh, my integrative masters at the uh, Escape Studios. Um, it was in VFX. Uh, the th- first three years were just kind of doing VFX and I specialised in 3D modelling and sculpting and I did texturing as well. And then for my final year, um, I worked on a games project, Novem, um, which was really interesting experience for myself because it was uh, the first time I'd worked in a games pipeline and yeah so that's what I've been doing. How was it what did you do when you worked on the um, games? Um, I basically it was kind of like we had to make a game and so like the first few months uh, from around September to December was mostly about business building and, and kind of researching and putting it all together and then from about January up until like uh, we finished like end of May, um, that was the artistic side. So we basically gotcha. did all the models. Um, I did for the first time, I got to kind of try out some concept art as well. Amazing. Uh, and so we did like low poly, it was a low poly game and we made, we kind of had to make as many models as possible and then texture them, substance paint and then put them in Unreal. Amazing. I mean, oh, did you say Unreal as Unreal Engine? Yeah, yeah, Unreal. Oh, Marvelous, cool. All right, thank you everyone. Thank you for introducing yourselves and letting us know a little bit about what you do. So we're going to kind of go into like the meat of the conversation now. And um, it'll be interesting to hear from all of you. um, What has your experience been like in the industry as someone from an ethnic diverse background or black black background um, in light of things that has happened um, in the the States and the current kind of like racial um, climate? I'd like to hear when it was good or bad, what were some of the what some of the experiences that you've had? It'd be good for us to hear them. So I'll just open it out to the grid as it were. Whoever wants to go first can go first. So it is I've, I've, it was so nice to be asked to talk about this. And I think, you know, it's one of these opportunities to speak honestly about mm. it and to really kind of structure your thoughts and to really get a nice, clear um, argument put forward. So I had to write a bit of this down, to be honest. So here we go. First of all, I always see that Everybody kind of understands that the film industry, television industry is a very exclusive um, area of work to be in. You know, it's quite a privileged area to be in in comparison to, you know, other jobs in in society. And my experience in the industry as a non-white is one where once you get into that industry, you find yourself entering into a bit of a game. And Mm. there's a a rather large contingent of people that out there in the industry that are playing this game. And uh, I guess from now on, I'll refer to this contingent as they, so I don't have to keep saying this large contingent. I just don't want to generalise and say everybody. So no, of course, of course. Clear. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it's a game, I think, that's been played for, for so long that it's what people mean when they say, you know, the situation's always been like that. Um, 
And it's a game that's been forgotten about as it's been banned for years in playgrounds. And it started as far back as Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech. And, you know, in that speech where he stated in 20 years time, a black man will have the whip hand over the white man, amongst other things that he said. And this game being played is a very strategic game, a bit like a Sun Tzu Art of War manuscript. And um, it's a strategic version of the playground game British Bulldog, is how I would describe it. And they play it like it's, like it's a war that they're fighting. You know, if we let one of them in, then they all start coming in. And that's basically what it is. It's a way of being able to maintain control over the opportunities in that industry and only let it available for the white citizens, basically, of, of the country. And to try to prevent as many black people or non-white people coming through as possible because it's an area of privilege and they don't want to spread it and share it and kind of dilute the privilege that they've got control over. And um, the game is systemic. I mean, it's been played even today throughout society from schools to workplaces to government institutions. And the reason why we don't say anything it isn't because like they think we don't know that this game is being played. The reason we don't say anything is because the game's rigged. And it's rigged to a double-edged sword. If we don't say anything and we keep quiet, then they continue to manipulate the situation to their advantages. And if we do choose to say something, then you're amongst such a majority of people that will support a notion to perpetuate reputation against you that will single you out as a troubled individual who's playing the black card and has a chip on their shoulder. Yeah, yeah. And because that threat of that reputation strikes fear in people from ethnic backgrounds, we let them get away with it by not saying anything. We're too scared to say something when it happens, when we, when we, when we experience it. So the best solution all round, which is given to most black people who make it into the industry or non-white, is to encourage yourself to shut up and recognise that you're benefiting from privilege and to be smart enough to know when you're onto a good thing. The reason, you know, that's maybe enough for, at this point mm. to stop there. Yeah, but I, I completely understand what you're saying, especially about the, um, if you do start to speak up against when you see things kind of like being done the way that they've been done, it, you are te you know, deemed aggressive or you have a chip on your shoulder or whatnot, even, even though you are standing up for an injustice or standing up for, for someone else, you're seeing an injustice being done too. So that I completely um, understand. Does anyone else want to share one of, uh, any of their thoughts or any of their experiences? We have Anne who put her hand up. Anne? Um, so I'm, I'm probably going to speak from, you know, a woman's perspective Please and do. more from like a black woman's perspective. And I think you know, as I've grown more in my career, I've, I've been fortunate, I, I would say, to sort of find my voice a bit more. But if I go back 10 years, exactly what Mark is saying, I was just like, it, and it's funny how this thing, it just conjures up so much emotion. Like I can feel my stomach churning now, just cool. trying to remember some of those experiences. You know, when I was the only female producer and a black producer in advertising, <laughs> the treatment was just like, it was exactly that. It was like a playground. It was a, like the British Bulldog. And it's like, you know, you're, you're, you're not playing that game. So you are already the odd one out. Mm. They're already, like, you're already outnumbered because you're not playing that game. And because you're not willing to play that game, it's, they make it even harder for you, right? But as I've kind of grown in experience and I've been able to be a bit more vocal, it's exactly what you're saying, Nene. It's like, 
it's a bit bossy. Yeah, because yeah, um, I've got that. It's exactly. a bit too loud sort of thing. Um, and I think just because of where I've come from and cause, because of, you know, and I won't go too much into detail, but because of all the bad experiences I've had of people not having my back, mm. um, you know, I can count probably in the last 11 years the people that have had my back at work that are not black. Mm. Like they would not feel, they would like, it's not up to 10 people. And this is going back 11 years, you know, hand on heart. So it's really painful. And like, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm more sort of like empowered now to be a voice for those people that are just starting in the industry. So people like Louise, um, that's just graduating, you know, I think like we who are a bit more senior, a bit more experienced have to be like the megaphone for those people. You know, we have to try and be a bit more active and sort of mentoring them because I don't want what happened to me to happen to a lot of other black girls, but I also want them to have those opportunities. I don't want them to feel like they have to be silent in order to get those opportunities. Like we, that's not what we should be promoting, but you know, I totally resonate with what you guys are saying. It, it's just, you, the, the system is rigged against you. And when you try to speak out, you're just, first of all, you're outnumbered because how many black people are actually working in the company? I've been the only black person working in the company, like 120 people, like 001%. So yeah. how do you even get to be heard? And then when you do try to be heard, it's just a bit like, yeah, you know, she's a little bit, bit too loud. So yeah, let's not, or, or they will just like be more fired up to go against you. Even, especially when they know that you're saying the right thing, especially when you're in a position of like management or when you're a bit senior, that's mm. when it's like, no, why should you, why should you be the one to say that, you know? So I think for me, it's like, I'm a bit more confident now to be able to speak up about these things and not back down. And I have a few people that have my back. But when, when you don't have that, it is, it is, it is really, really tough. It yeah. is really hard. And it's really, it's lonely as well, which is why you have such a huge churn yeah. rate with yeah. people from our community who actually leave some of these industries because it's like, I can't see anyone above me who I can aspire to and I don't have anyone around me to support, to support me. So I'm outnumbered, so I might as well just leave the game, isn't it? I think, Michael, I saw you had, was that little troll doll, doll you put up? So yeah, go for it, man. I guess what I'll be is just echoing what Mark and Anne said. You know, you're in the industry, especially, you know, I've worked in many studios, say up to over a thousand people, and I can count on my hands the amount of black people in there, you know, and that's it's pretty bad. But um, when I was first early years in the industry, you know, you think you are in there and you can speak openly, but um, you realize you do feel like you have to be quiet and you have to keep your head down or else you're just going to get your neck chopped. You know, even coming on this, I thought, how how far could I really go? Because it's one of those things of it's easy to lose your job if you say something wrong or you expose too much or you say anything that's out of line. Because it's hard to see when you go into an industry like this, black people beyond, say, entry level, and they don't get promoted that much to lead senior supervisors and stuff like that. So you want to see yourself, how come they're not going to that level? How come they're always, they're not even in core teams as well. Like we get hired for jobs, project by project. But when you see the core team, they might not even have, a, not even one black person in there. So you think to yourself, especially in the UK, in London, you'd think it's a multicultural environment. How come they don't have more of a representation in that sense as well? So, yeah, I'm just echoing, like I said, what Mark and Anne said. 
there's a lot. Yeah, there is, there is. Sinead, do you put your hand up? I think we had Bimpe yeah. first, sorry. Oh, did we? Sorry, Sinead, sorry. Sinead, sorry. I'm, I'm the eye in the sky. I think you are, go <laughs> for sorry, it. Sorry, I put it up a while ago, sorry. sorry I mean, although, to be honest, it is kind of, again, yeah, echoing what everybody says, like it's, um, there's, uh, I think firstly, collectively, we're all feeling this sense of exhaustion. Yeah. Um, this isn't something, we've known about it for ages, we've been talking about it for ages, but I think the current circumstances with quarantine and everything, um, is add I think adds to that extra weight of everything and it, I think we're all beyond exhausted by this point and beyond exhausted about having to continuously enter spaces within systems that were never set up to support us in the first place mm -hmm. to constantly kind of go into spaces and carry the weight of being the only one to carry the weight of knowing that your silence is essentially going to be your only source of protection for a certain amount of time because as the others have said speaking candidly can either, will either be met with resistance, denial, or at times, yeah, losing your job. And that forces you again to be lesser. We already have to walk around the streets being, almost feeling as if we are lesser and being constantly told that we are lesser to a certain extent, whether that's via somebody actually saying that to us or whether that's through what we read or see on the media or hear. And that is, it's, that's insanely draining. And the microaggressions that come with that um, there are times where you try to broach the conversation with people and they will shut it down quickly. They will shut it down very quickly. They'll be willing to have conversations about everything except race. Mm. And that can't, that's just, it's not acceptable. It's never been acceptable. And I think as Mark said, like it's become so almost, it's just normalized. And a lot of people don't want to shift that. They don't want to have to shift that. Yeah. Shanae. I'm sorry, sorry for interrupting you, by the way. No, that's fine. Um, I guess for me, I've not really worked in the industry for years or had the experiences that um, everyone's been mentioning. But I guess for me, um, I guess I can speak on in a place from like the beginning. So I guess at university, um, I was one of a uh, few black people in uh, my classes. Um, and then I've also had industry experience. I have had internships um, in big companies as well. And when I've got in there, again, I'm quite underrepresented. Um, but it's very weird because I've had many amazing opportunities. Um, like I got a scholarship and the person who gave me the scholarship did see me uh, and then I had to send a video. Um, they did see my name, which isn't, I guess, a stereotypical uh, white name, let's say. Um, I've also got, uh, like I said, two years, two summers in a row, I worked in a big company. Um, I also got a job straight after graduating. So. I've had amazing opportunities, but I think for me, my experience is that as soon as I got in the door, I've realized that I'm underrepresented. And then I've also seen that, um, like a few people have just mentioned, that there aren't many people of color in managerial or executive positions that then can boost my confidence to think that's where I can be one day. So a lot of the time I kind of just get to a place where I'm grateful of the opportunity, but then I don't really see past that of where am I going to go or where can I get um, because I don't, I don't see it. So at the moment, I am quite um, early on in my career. I do enjoy marketing. It is quite different to being an artist in the um, industry. But at the same time, um, even so in the company I'm working in, again, there's not many uh, people of color um, in managerial or executive positions that even so, again, I'm in a place where I'm like, what's next for me or my other uh, uh, friends or colleagues that are um, people of color. So um, that is my experience. Yeah, it's a huge problem, yeah. So. We had Hannah with her hand up. Hannah, yeah. do you have anything to add? And then Michael. 
Okay, um, I think sort of following on from similar to Sinead, like, because I'm still sort of, com compared to some people here, I'm sort of still somewhat young in the industry, you know, you know about five years, I've stayed at the same company. And look, I'm very thankful that the company that I'm at has been really supportive about, um, you know, uh, pushing people, like, you know, pushing people up in their role, regardless of, uh, you know, this color of your skin. But I think I want to sort of, would like to touch on is um, sort of my sort of my culture and my background in regards to I don't know about some people but um, I find that within like Asian culture uh, the heavily the heavily sort of discouraged sort of creative career options at the mm. very start and I think just like you know go pursuing a creative career people you know parents had to discourage it because uh, they want you to have like more financially stable jobs and it comes from a you know place of love but I find that um, I knew a lot of friends who were very talented in art, but they had to be persuaded by their parents to not pursue a creative career and sort of trying to convince parents and educate them that there are possibilities uh, in the creative industry. And uh, for me, when I was quite young, there was a lot of tears and arguing with my parents to try to really convince them that this is the career that I really want to pursue. And, um, and yeah, I'm very thankful they, you know, sort of gave me, trust and like let me pursue it but it was a you know it was a hard road to want to do it in the first place regardless of you know getting into the industry and sort of studying it yeah so interesting because um even as because uh, i'm nigerian my background is nigerian and i had the same i had the same struggle i had to really especially my father i really had to convince him was like dad I, i'm not academic because he was a nuclear physicist but i want to i want to do something that's creative but i think and he was just like, well, no, 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 I want you to, I want you to do something more stable. So I had to kind of like almost fight him on that. But I think it is, that is part of the problem, basically, the fact that they're, it's kind of trying to make the older generation kind of understand that this is a viable, it is a viable career. And once you get into, into it, you know, it's something that is, that is stable. And the good thing about that is that once you get into it, and if you're able to stay and move, your, move up, just like Sinead said, then you would be able to see people who look like you and then you have people that you can aspire to. So it, it kind of continues to, continue to help. So who was next, Simon? I, I saw oh, some. Yeah, I've got a bit of a, a lineup now. So uh, Michael, um, I know you had your hand up. Um, can I just keep, keep you in my back pocket because I know you've already spoken. I've not heard from Larabe yet. So can I throw Larabe in first? Hi. Yeah, so I could kind of relate to Hannah because I'm from um, Pakistan and uh, through my upbringing and childhood, I, I had a very strict uh, family rules in the house. My father wouldn't allow me to socialize or go out of the house. So I would mostly, apart from school, stay home. And I got used to it. And I, I would prefer just staying home in my corner, just reading books and drawing and watching anime features. And that's how I discovered my passion in art and design. So uh, I also went to meditation at age. So I think it made me a very very focused person and I think it also kept me out of trouble and confrontate confrontations and uh, arguments with anyone else so I would just always stay focused on what I wanted to do and just basically reflect on myself even though convincing my family my father wasn't that easy it was a it was a struggle because that's why I had family problems um, but we moved to the UK at the age of 14 and uh, that's where my, my mother, my brother, they supported me and I got in v VFX at the age of 19. And then 
I knew this is a lifetime opportunity. When I started studying VFX, I was the only girl and the youngest. And I knew I can't be intimidated. This is my, this is my chance now. This is my time. And I just went all out. I just gave it 100%. And after the course, which was only like six, five, six months, I was already offered jobs. The recruiter there, the manager was also Asian woman. And she, she was like, I would like to, you know, promote you out there in the industry. I would like to send you out to the industry for freelance work. And that's how I started getting jobs after that at the age of 19 and kind of officially became the only woman and, and the youngest from Pakistan because my, my news went viral as well on Facebook. Other people were, uh, you know, um, sharing this uh, picture with me and saying that she has worked on some such projects. And I knew that even though I've been so focused and quiet, I know it is so important to take a stand if you see anything wrong in your workplace or you need to, because I've been doing that again and again for my mother, for my family. We need to speak up, we need to, uh, we need to stand up and represent. representation really matters, I think. Representing my community and showing them that I've been able to reach this far, I think it really, really is important. And I think we all need to get together and, and fight through and uh yeah that's that's what i wanted to say so it's been a struggle within my community within my family problems that i went through uh was mostly a bigger challenge for me can i totally relate totally who's next sorry uh, we've got prince prince was gonna throw in yeah very very similar thoughts to, to everyone else really and i think um it's been mixed like it's been good and bad i'm thankful for the opportunities that i have had and i haven't been in the industry as long as as some of you guys have, like I graduated in 2012. Um, and then like I think the first couple of years of that was just trying to get a job or running or doing small bits here and there. But someone said something about feeling lonely and that struck a chord with me because like you walk into a company and then you kind of look around and you're like, ah, oh. especially for me being from working class, like my parents came here in the eighties. We're kind of the first generation here and going to like an inner London school you walk in and you, you you kind of had this expectation that oh yeah I'm going to walk into to work and everyone's going to be like me or people are going to speak the same way as me and you realize that like no nah, everyone's from Kent and then it's just like whoa it's just like a really strange kind of thing that I had to I had to get used to and then even then when I was doing really well and like I feeling like I had to work as twice as hard as everyone else just to kind of get an opportunity when they did come I'd look at like the higher positions and there'd be no one who looked like me, no one who spoke like me, no one, like it, it just, it just feels kind of lonely and you just get kind of down. Um, so one of my good friends who I went to uni with, he's half Vietnamese, half German, he kind of grew up in a similar environment to, to, to me and went to a similar school to me. He's like my, my, uh, my buddy, my work buddy in Frankstall because we can find people hear us talk and they're like, oh, we don't, we don't understand what you guys are talking about when you, when you two are together. <laughs> So we, we kind of get along and you need people like that. Like that representation is so important because you can't, you can't see it any other way. And when there was other black people in the department or in the company, uh, we'd always get along and always ask ourselves, like, oh, how come we can't see people like us like, as supervisors or as leads or in these higher positions? And I remember I did an internship at the mill and one of my mates who was on the same course as me um, what we used to do every week there'd be like a, a list of like a schedule and like new starters or stuff like that we always used to look at the list to see if we could find any ethnic names 
And every time we had that, we found an ethnic name, we text each other and be like, oh, there's one in this suite. There's a, there's a black guy in the flame. There's an Asian, da, 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 da. Like it meant so much to us, so much. And even Michael, how I met Michael, I remember when I met Michael um, while we was working on Tarzan, I saw, I was like, oh my days, there's a, there's a black guy, there's another black guy on the floor, what? LinkedIn, intranet, I was checking him up, what senior anime, I was going mad. I was like, no, 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 I've got to talk to him, I've got to talk to him. So it means, it means a lot because you do, you do feel like really lonely and you have, you have good and bad experiences. So you, you need those kind of, those things to look at to be like, you know what? Yeah, I can, I can do this or it kind of gives you a boost to, to kind of carry on going. Exactly. And someone to talk to as well. You know, I've, well, some of my mentees have not been in the, in, in the industry that I'm in, but they still enjoy talking to me because they know that I understand some of the issues that they've been having. It's just, even just the listening ear is, is a lot. It, it does a lot, you know? So yeah, I've got quite a, quite a deli counter of people waiting to speak. So I'm going to go to Michael because uh, that was a nice segue from, uh, from Prince's point. Um, so Michael, you had your hand up uh, a few clicks earlier. What would you like to throw in? All right. Now I was just going to say about, um, you know, cause I've been to Singapore, so I know, about how the Asian culture is very much not about, like you said, the, the elders are more about not doing creative art style. And that's similar to as well, um, Caribbean, because I'm coming from Jamaican background, my parents. A lot of things, like my mom was okay with it because we were Rastafarians, but a lot of uncles and aunts and the whole thing of we're going to be drawing, there was like, there's no chance, there's no career in drawing, you gotta do business. Even my grandparents, like you gotta, you know, they came here to do nursing and stuff like that. So it's the arts for like Caribbean culture, um, black being African as well. Artists isn't really the way they want to go forward. So that's one thing that's quite hard. But also what I wanted to say was when you do go into the industry, you want to know that you're getting chosen because of your talent, because you've got some counterparts that will say, oh yeah, but are these people being chosen because they're good at their skill or is it because they're black? And that's thing that really puts people down because you think to yourself, like Prince Smith said earlier, as black people, all the black artists that I know, hands down, are amazing because they have to work that much harder just to even be seen, just to be in the industry. Like there's animators that I know that are supervisors and the skill that they have is phenomenal. And you look at them and go, they are extremely that good because they have to be or else they just want to be chosen. And those kind of things you think to yourself, do you have to be the Michael Jordan of artwork or animation just to be able to get a lead position or a senior position, whereas someone else could just be average and get that position, you think to yourself, is that really fair? I know you could say it's um, sub subjective, but it's one of those things that you know black people Asian people have to work 10 times harder just to get into a senior role. 100%. 100%. I would agree with that. And I think it was, it was because so that they couldn't reject you on the fact that your work wasn't good. You know, it's something my mom told me, you know, she said, they'll look at your gender, they'll look at your color. Okay. So make sure that your work is so good that they can't reject you on that. Because as I often tell my um, mentees, no one can contest good work. If you're good, you're good. You're good, no matter where, where you're from, you know. So it's just kind of like the, the need to kind of prove ourselves again and again and again and again and again is sometimes one of the reasons why we work as hard as we do to get to the level that we get to. So it's like, okay, you can't reject me on, on the basis of my work. What else have you got? Okay, my skin colour. Okay, my gender. Yeah. 
Thank you. Um, Louise, you were going to, you had your hand up. Um, yes, um, I just wanted to say like uh, some of my own experiences. Um, I can remember feeling like I didn't belong in the expression the first year. And so that was a kind of like a struggle for me. And, and, and just off that, um, there's actually, um, I worked as a student ambassador as well. And I actually saw the same experience being mirrored in like a student that was coming up and she really struggled in the first year. She's just finished her first year. And, and in fact, she, she kind of considered dropping out halfway. And so I had to kind of, it was a nice experience for me to kind of just counsel her and you know, give her some advice. But it's definitely, I think, um, an experience that's echoed. Like you feel like you don't belong. Um, yeah, so that um, maybe something else is a, there's a disconnect um, in terms of people's understanding of culture. And if they're from, like you said, most people, like we had like a ton of people coming from different backgrounds. And so like they might not have experienced the same things that you might have experienced. So that was a bit difficult, I think, for a lot of people who are like a POC or black. Wimpe, you had your um, hand up earlier. Yes, um, I just kind of wanted to um, extend a little bit what some of the others have said already um, in terms of like, yeah, I'm from a Nigerian family, well, Nigerian, my parents like emigrated here in the 80s as well and they were not having any of me going into the arts. Like, in fact, like that wasn't, I only came into VFX four years ago because I was in a completely different industry before. I was in, working in digital marketing and music. Um, when I had said that I was going to be leaving that because I wanted to help make Marvel movies because I love that stuff. Um, my parents were just like, what? Like, there's no money there. There's not any, like, they didn't think it was, a, they didn't think it was a safe space for me. They didn't see anybody else on the screen or, was, or that they knew of behind the screen that they felt would be of a, well, could even be a role model um, in any shape or form. They didn't see where I would potentially be supported within that space. Um, and I think it's important that we also kind of mention and remember like that in itself can be quite exhausting when you make those moves and the weight of kind of going into spaces, knowing that you are um, the only one, because for a while I was the only one out of about 300 people. Um, and that in the impact that we're knowing that you have to work hard and keep working harder, knowing the impact and the toll that that can have on your self-esteem and your mental health and your confidence, knowing that potentially you are carrying the weight for yourself, carrying the weight for other people in your community, carrying the weight to prove that you can do this, to prove that you don't want to let down your community, to prove to your family, to prove to your friends, to prove to yourself, but also to prove to your employers that, okay, I can do this. I'm Because there's a, sometimes the worry that if you fail at this, that this will have a knock-on effect for everybody, for anybody else that looks like you that wants to come into these spaces, worrying that their worry may be, okay, well, this one black person couldn't do it. Um, so let's not take the risk on anybody else. And that can be a lot. And again, having those, that's what makes it, I think, even more important to have those support structures in place. Though it is at least somebody that you can talk to, that you can be able to approach and, and, Sometimes you do have to look further afield to be able to find that. Yeah. Hayden, you had your hand up as well. Sorry. It's taken me a while to get right around to you, Hayden, but yeah. I saw you. I think there's been a lot of good things mentioned. Um, I think what I've taken from this all already is that 
it's so how clear it is that people need to be able to see someone who looks like them. How how important that aspect of things is. Um, I, even just the fact that we're on this call now and you can see so many different people from different races and um, nationalities, and we can see that means we're definitely out there in the industry. It is now more about us being coming, being more vocal, and being more visible. Um, I, I mean, I mean, even for me, when I when I met my first mentor, Ete, um, who's in, who now is the CEO at Engine, I found him on LinkedIn literally. And I remember when I found him on LinkedIn, I was like, "Wow, there's a black CEO in an in, 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 in advertising agency." Um, and I literally just sent him a message on LinkedIn saying, "How do I like? It's just amazing to see a black CEO. I've never seen this before. He was MD at the time, actually, but I'd never seen someone like that at an agency." And just having that conversation alone was so empowering for me. And then I suppose when you take all of these thoughts to think there's black people and different races who are going into, going, into, going into spaces, feeling all of this pressure before they even start working, before they even start working, before they even start their job, they're thinking, I'm representing my whole, I'm representing my whole race. I'm and if I've got to change the way I speak, I've got to make my voice softer. I've got to, I've got to, move, I've got to move differently. I can't, I can't speak in a, in, a, in, a, in a language that is comfortable for me. And when you think about you're taking all these kind of pressures on top of the fact that you're now thinking you've got to do your job, it's a lot to take in. And, and I think if you're someone who's never experienced that, try and envision what that's like for a person going into a career and then going into a career space and you don't even see anyone who looks like you again. That just, that just really um, compounds on the issue. So it's kind of agreeing with everybody's saying and just yeah, giving my two, point, two pence on that. Thank yeah, you. absolutely. Um, absolutely. Uh, Mark, you had your hand up a couple of times, so I don't want to leave you out. Um, just to pick up from what Hayden said, I think really is a mm. good segue. Um, the I, and, and also what Bimpe said. But um, for me, and I don't know about you guys, but I never ever feel like I'm the only black guy or the only nigger in the village when I'm in these places. I never feel like that, right? I'm only ever made to feel. I don't walk around with a mirror all the time reminding myself that I'm black. When I go into these places, I feel that I'm amongst kindred spirits. I feel that I'm amongst other digital compositors. I feel that I'm amongst other visual effects artists like myself. I'm only ever made to feel different or singled out and have the pressure that these guys have mentioned because of the daily singling out racist mentions, you know, whether it's, you know, whatever it might be to identify you as being somebody different to everybody else, you know, and it could be, could be anything from, being friendly, talking to a girl there, and then being told, "Why well, are you talking to? Why are you talking to her? Why don't you talk to your own kind?" Or um, you know, um, all sorts of things. You know, the kind of there's a daily kind of rhetoric that people enjoy basically putting across to you on a daily basis, and it's that that makes you feel or remind you that you're the only black guy or girl in 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 the environment. And other than that, you should. I'm sure you all just feel like, hey. You know, when you go home, you're with your family. When you're out, you're with your friends. They've all got different jobs. When you're in work, you're actually amongst kindred spirit and you feel like the rest of them, but they don't allow you to feel comfortable with them. Yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm going to agree with that, um, Mark. Um, I, understand what, I understand what you're saying, but at the same time, I do agree with what Bimpe and Hayden have said. I, I have myself have felt that pressure. I've, I've gone into advertising agents agencies and they've thought of like you know either the account handler or the copywriter because being a black female art director is a I'm a bit of a gazelle or unicorn or griffin or whatever it is um you know so I do feel that that 
you know, pressure to kind of represent, as it were, you know, to the point there was times when I was actually changing myself, you know, changing the way I spoke or the way I carried myself and everything else, until I got to the stage that Anne did, basically, and I was like, you know what, this is me, this is my voice, this is my experience, I'm going to use it, and this is, this is basically who I am. So yes, you're right, I think you can go in, and if you're confident within yourself, you can say, do you know what, I'm here, I'm an animator, I'm amongst other animators, so I'm just, I'm just cool. But unfortunately, it doesn't, just like you said, it doesn't always happen the other way round and they won't see you as a you know animate they'll just see you as say a black animator so it just yeah yeah it's you, you it's yeah you, you feel it yeah you feel it so who was who was i've got a few people we need to come back to so kenny you had your hand up uh, mm. five ten minutes ago yeah um i basically i want to kind of echo what a lot of of these guys have, have said already but um i think my experience is it's it's been mixed it's been mixed so i think when i first started as an intern uh when i jumped well when i walked into the studio and and you know i was it was a studio of five people it was really really small i walked in and obviously i was the only, obviously i'm the only black person there and i tell them yeah i grew up not too far from here i am from this part of town and it's yeah, it was just weird. It felt like there was still this disconnect, even though we were all apparently from the apparently from the same part of town. It felt like there was this disconnect where I could say something and it's like, you know, but you know, this is what I've dealt with growing up in this part of town. And they're like, oh, okay. And just that element of it is kind of disconnect where even if you are, like Mark was saying, even if you are in the same workplace, there is still going to be that disconnect between the creatives because you're not all living similar or or kind of grouped uh, experiences where we, you know some people won't experience it at all, at all in their life, and some and most uh, sorry other uh, people will experience it either daily or monthly or yearly, um, or will always have it in the back of their mind. Um, and I think what uh, I, I mean to pick up on just like two more points, what Prince was saying about when he started the mill, I thought about the exact same thing when I joined the mill Uh, and the thing is I didn't I waited until a year after because I felt you know what I'm new I'm like that one of the only black people in the studio another black person joined when I after I started but I was like I'm only one of the one of the few black people in the in the studio let alone just the design studio okay I'll just keep my head down do all the work I need to do try and be as diligent of a worker as possible and then the next year I started to pick out new starters that were coming that were runners and going hey uh, do you need a help with anything do you need assistance what are you trying to get into which direct which, you know who can I direct you to who can I talk to to get you in like they're in oh just jump in, try and see if you can help these people get them a drink. And then when you walk in, go, oh, that's nice. I like what you're doing over there. And then try and get that rapport because that's the only way you're going to make it in. Like that's the only way we kind of have to support each other to get each other in. And um, just to follow on what a lot of people have said about, you know, backgrounds and cultures and parents being kind of a driving force to push them away from the creative industry. I think I've also experienced that. I'm from a Nigerian family as well. My mom and dad are from Nigeria. They came here in the 80s. And uh, my brother, my older brother, is only a year and a half older than me, but he's in the creative industry as well. Um, but he works in the charity sector. And it was very similar for him, who was, in, you know, my dad was trying to push him to be a programmer and, you know, to be like him, be an IT guy, because that's, you know, it's stable, that's where the money is. But 
Uh, and my uh, thing, my judge was trying to get me to do something like be a politician, which I really don't know why, <laughs> why I should do that. Um, but uh, it was, I think the the core thing that was ingrained in this was you need to make sure you work twice as hard because it's going to be hard for you. And it was no matter what you do, if you want to be a doctor, a lawyer, a politician, an IT technician, uh, whatever, try and do something that's is going to support you in the long run, but also work twice as hard because you're going to have to. And I feel like that's a common strand with a lot of the people I've talked to, like especially this week and the last two weeks, a lot of the people that I've, we've all had the same types of stories of parents or people, family members who people who they look up to saying to them, it's going to be a very difficult for you. They may not tell you directly, like straight to your face, like it's going to be an issue because of this, but they'll say, you need to work twice as hard. You know you need to work twice as hard and you understand it straight off the bat. You understand it. Thank you, Kenny. Um, I know Mark's dying to say something. I'm coming to you, Mark. Very quick. Oh, go on, go on then, go on. I was just going to say back to Kenny, I mean, and, and the others, how often we all recognise that, that, um, that advice that's been instilled in us by all our parents, all our parents, friends, all our significant others that you've got to work twice as hard. How many times have you been in a company and this has ever happened to you, where, where you've come in and someone's seen you working twice as hard and they've said to you, don't make me look bad. Yikes. Um, anyone, is that? Can we go to Anne? Because Anne was next yeah. in the chopping order anyway. So yeah. if you want go to for take it, that. I'm coming to you, Michael. Sorry, I, have, <laughs> I have so much to say, but I'm going to try and like, you know, condense it a little bit. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm Nigerian as well. Um, my parents still live in Nigeria. So I grew up in a very, you know, my dad was a general in the army. So I, I pretty much grew up in the army. And I think I, I don't really blame our parents' generation for wanting us to just have regular jobs. Because in Nigeria, you're a doctor, you're a banker, you're an engineer, you're a pharmacist. Those are the things that put food on the table. So that's what they're like, go and do that. That's going to secure your future, right? But look at us. That, that didn't stop us, right? We're still creatives. So I think it's like we believed in ourselves enough for our parents to believe in us. And that was, that for me, that is what kind of, my dad is my biggest fan now. Like my dad's one of my best friends. So my dad right now will call me and like, what do you do? Help me understand. So what is this producing thing? You know, initially it was like, what is all this Disney? You know, it's the, what's all the stuff you're watching, you know? But it is kind of, you believe in yourself enough for them to believe that, yes, you know what you're doing. And then they're like, you have my blessing, go. So that's what I'll say about just our parents' generation. Um, but one thing you said, Nene, um, you know, about, you know, your mom telling you to kind of work hard and, you know, your work, you know, your work is, is, is what's going to carry you. Don't do it because, you know, don't let them employ you because you're back, whatever. I once had a boss tell me, um, you know, I can never catch you out, you know, <laughs> no, honest to goodness right? and he was and you, you could see him puzzling he was just like i can't, I can't ever catch you out and i'm like you do you know i'm nigerian <laughs> you know it's like <laughs> but it's like he, he was saying that because it's like i was just doing my work i didn't care about trying to all the politics all that but he was just like why can't i catch you out and I was just like, because you're not going to catch me out because I'm doing my job. And, and, I was well. and I'm doing it well. And I was still pretty junior. Like I, I wasn't, this is going back many, many years, you know, and the, the work will always speak for you. But the, I, I feel still, even till this day that I'm quite senior, I'm part of the management team in, 
in DNAG, um, I constantly feel like I have to wear armor. Constantly. I, like, and, I, and maybe guys, maybe this is different for you, for you. For me, I constantly feel like I can't put my armor down even when I'm at work, even mm. when I know what I'm saying, even when I'm like, okay, yes, please challenge me. I still feel like I can't, I can't just take this armor off and just be seen, right? Just be seen for like, she's making a point, you know, she, she, she is, she, she's welcome in this space. I always feel like, yeah, you're welcome. Like, yes, you have a seat at the table, but we won't really open the door for you, you know? And, and, and it's, for me, it's like, we have so much energy right here. And for me, I keep thinking, how, how do we keep this momentum and change this narrative? That's what it, that's what, that's what's been kind of going through my mind. But I really do feel like I just constantly have to wear armor. Yeah. Yeah. You have to keep it up, don't you? You have to just keep it up. Mark, what you said was just crazy. I, I, personally, I was like, yep. Personally, that's, I, I don't think that's happened to me, but... I have had people do the opposite and said, say, oh, Nene, the, the more good work you do, the better I look. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not quite sure how to take that now, honestly, whether that was like, or whether that was like, okay, okay, okay. I mean, it, 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 sorry, did somebody need to speak? Yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm working, for, I want to make sure everybody speaks who's sure. had their hand up. I don't know, Prince, you had your hand up a few times and then I'd like to go to Michael and then, and then Sinead. And we need to think about time because this is getting this is an epic podcast in terms of length. Um, so yeah, uh, Prince, please. Yeah, I, I, I feel what uh, Mark said about people making you feel like you're different, and it can happen in in loads of different ways. It may not be as as obvious, but because because you are, you know, your upbringing's different. You're you're from an ethnic background, and, and most people aren't. They may even in small conversation, like small chat, small talk, or just little jokes that people have. And you're like, oh, I never, I never had that, or I never did that, or I don't get that, or I can't joke in the same way. And you almost have to learn it as you as you grow up in the industry. You learn how to kind of get down and 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 integrate into those circumstances. And and when you do that, and every time you have to do that, even if it's in a small way, it's like a slight in in your head. It's like, oh, again, I have to do this, or and it gets very, very, very tiring. So. So I do agree with him, and I just I just want to say one thing that happened to me where which made it stand out is just having a normal week going into work, and at the time where I was, um, there was another company in the building uh, that wasn't the same as the VFX one, and usually we have to have our passes on show. Mine was in my pocket, so I'm going into the building, and then uh, two people go in front of me. They're fine. Don't show their passes. There's no one at the door anyway, and then a guy comes downstairs, and then he sees me coming in, and he kind of stopped me. And then, and then just gave me like the dirtiest look ever. I was kind of like, oh, where'd you, like, where are you doing? Where are you going? And I was like, oh, I work here. I'm, I'm going into the building. He's like, oh, you don't have your pass. I was like, why didn't you ask them why they don't have your pass? Why they don't have their pass? Unfortunately, my boss, the head of my department was behind me. He was coming back from lunch. So he walked in and showed his pass. And was like, yeah, he works here. Like, what do you think you're doing? And the guy just walked in. And then he, we just both just laughed it off. And I got back to my desk and I was like, did that actually just happen? Like, did that actually, like, I couldn't believe it. And I feel like those experiences or things things that, you know, happen a lot where you're made to feel different, even, even like, people mistaking you for the other black guy in the department or the other black, like, I, 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 I was praying that when I said that, no one started laughing because I was praying that it was just me. But unfortunately, I can see everyone's reaction and everyone's got mad. But even small things like that, it's like, why, why does this have to happen? 
and those a lot of those people who were, who were in my department at the time they, they both left and and they're not they're, they're not in uh, not they don't work at framestore no more because of, of bad experiences that they had or the way they felt and that's that's no just the framestore they've always been been great but it's just i think like a build-up of things that happened to them and um another time sorry another um, thing that i have to say is uh, there was a, a moment when we went to a like a big screening room because James Gunn came to see us all, the whole team that was working on Guardians. And I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to get to see him, blah, blah, blah. Walked into the room, sat down, looked around, and I was only the, the only black person working on the film at, at Framestore. Um, and then I walked out and then I had the same thing. I was like, that's crazy. Like how, it was a big moment, but then I was quickly reduced to zero because I was like, why is that? Why does this hurt me so much? And I spoke to my friend about it and she was like, you know what? She flipped it for me. She's like, it's a good thing because at least you're there to, to represent people like like you. Do you know what I mean? So I kind of tried to view it as a positive way. And that's another one of the reasons why I was so determined to get into comp at Framestore because the comp team there is ridiculous. Like everyone is so talented. And um, it was a big deal for me to stick with it and to make sure that I made it. So yeah, it does work both sides, but I, I feel what you said, Mark, 100%. Thanks, Michael. You've been dying to speak on this, so you back in i know um i just want to say it is hard though as a black person to have to represent every black person on the planet it's a bit much um especially when they ask you are you jamaican or you're not african or are you african and you're not caribbean it's like you know you shouldn't have to be a person that's representing a whole community that's black is what what is black black could be anywhere around the world if you just got dark skin and that's pretty hardcore to um, represent. But what I wanted to say was more of, you know, I had an interview one time when I first got into industry in a games company and they were asking me like, do you go to the pub? And things like that, because I don't drink to that degree, it's one of those things you don't get a job because you don't go to the pub or you don't do certain things like that and you think to yourself, wow, and this was early on leaving uni, I didn't know that you had to be a certain way just to get in the industry as in pop culture that was a different thing for me so it was just little things like that, that I wanted to just mention well, um, I'm gonna hand to Shanae and then we're really really pressed for time um, so I'm gonna hand back out to Nene to kind of take it from there but Shanae you had a, a point make sure it's yeah. a good one because it could be the final word potentially <laughs> I guess it kind of rounds up what everyone was talking about anyways and similar like I said earlier about um, I'm speaking from quite an early stage, uh, just graduating and just getting into work. Um, similar to everyone, what everyone said, I think we spend more time at work um, than we do in our own homes, in our culture, surrounded by people who understand us. And I think constantly having to, like we said, uh, refrain from talking about what we did have for dinner on the weekend, the music we listened to, the festivals we've attended, um, the things we enjoy from our culture, we can speak about it, but then we do feel in a way alienated or people won't understand. So, you know, we just say, yeah, you know, I saw my family on the weekend. Um, and again, we spend Monday to Friday um, having to hide that. And if we do mention it, it could either be in a group of five and then quickly turns into what they did on the weekend and the conversation can continue. Um, so I'd probably just say like, uh, that is a hard thing is socializing and um, actually being happy with speaking about what you do enjoy and the activities you do um, but I'd probably say a challenge to start doing is having those conversations because I'm sure that a lot of our colleagues they just they, they are not used to it so they won't continue asking like what is that music you listen to what why do you style your hair that way or 
why is that the activities you and your family get up to um but if you do just kind of I'm challenging myself to start having those conversations I'm the only uh, person of color in my team and I actually mentioned the first time why I style my hair or why I did it on the Thursday so it could look good on the Saturday and um I felt really awkward but now I feel really happy I did that um so yeah I'd probably just round it off to say like if you do find yourself in those uh, situations just just have those conversations so that hopefully your colleagues can just it can get normalized to them if that makes sense yeah it does yeah that's a good point actually Sinead it's a, it's a good point and it kind of ties in with what um Prince and Michael were saying sorry Prince when you were just like oh they mistake you for the other black person I'm sorry it was so funny I'm sorry it was so funny so many times we've, we've had that it's just it's just ridiculous like we all look alike or, or something but uh, we are really pressed for time it's like um yeah we're really pressed for time so what I'd like to do is just skip very quickly to um uh, this last question and I want to end it on a positive note would you be able to give me just in the same vein as Sinead has done just one um, piece of advice that you'll give to someone who is currently experiencing some of the challenges that we've all spoken about and how they can overcome that particular challenge I mean I think so I think first of all I just wanted to share something that if you guys haven't watched um, it's a beautiful TED talk by Chimamanda and Kwasia Adichie she's a Nigerian um, author but she did this amazing TED talk about the danger of a single story please, please, please go and just look for it and watch it. It is, it says so much about all the conversations that we've been having and how we can, you know, hopefully change, change all of our stories to not just be a single story or, or a combination of single stories. Um, but I think advice that I would give is continue to show up for yourself. Don't be afraid to be authentic. Um, Shanae, don't be afraid to do it here on a Thursday just because it can look good on a, on a, on a, on a Saturday, you know. Um, if you continue to be your authentic self and show up for yourself and continue to use the energy that we have, you know, Black people, we have such energy. It is contagious. That's why we want to sort of just be there for each other. If you continue to show up for yourself, there's nothing that they can do. They will try, but there is absolutely nothing that they can do do so you have to be showing up for your authentic self every day it's hard it's exhausting i'm tired but we can't be tired and we have to just keep showing up for each other and for ourselves i, th I think you should just if anybody's in that kind of mindset just remember that you're so incredible that they've had to rig the system for you for four five six hundred years so imagine how powerful you must be that they've had to rig the system like that that's the way i look at you must be just such a supreme power that they're so scared of you that they've got to break the system um i think fundamentally there's so there is a i think this 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 um conversation shows there's a lot of us out there and i think it's just about making sure you're going out there and looking for your community we do exist don't be don't think that you're the only one you'll you'll be surprised that there's more of us than you actually think um and i found that in advertising it and i found that in digital and i'm now seeing that obviously now in animation and the vfx there's we're definitely there so it's just about going out there doing a little little LinkedIn search and you'll find somebody. So even if that helps. I think just yeah to extend on what Anne Hayden and Sinead said, uh, continue to show up for yourself. Be, if you can and if you feel comfortable, continue to speak out on things. Sometimes even no matter what kind of role or position you are in, um, I think this is an educational space for a lot of people right now. And a lot of people are willing to listen. A lot of people are willing to actually hear us as well um don't be afraid to kind of air any of what those microaggressions may have been um it's not that every company is out to kind of like do this or do that i think it's important that um 
we're willing to be heard and we're willing to kind of speak up as well as and when we feel is comfortable and right for us and to know that we are all that yeah there is a community out there and that we are supporting each other and supporting each other as much as possible and connecting with each other as much as possible thank you Bente. louise Lovely. um yeah firstly i'd just like to recommend like uh this youtube channel the grapevine um they usually have some really interesting discussions about current topics um, affecting black people or like um and they're really good for black people and non-black people because they just kind of uh, teach and educate and lastly i'd just like to say like what hayden said um just like go out and network as, as much as possible um and find like-minded people i think one of the best things that happened to me whilst uh, studying at escape was probably finding accessibility effects because um, when I went to the events and I found out loads of uh, like-minded people who were interested in the sort of same sort of things that I was, that really kind of opened my mind and kind of gave me a way of planning and finding exactly what I wanted to do other than being an artist. So yeah, thank you. Um, I think I wanted to recommend um, a show that I just recently watched called uh, Giri Haji and the reason I'm recommending this is it's not necessarily a documentary but I wanted to share a piece of I guess it's a it's a TV series that got released on um, on Netflix and it's more about creating more uh, content with uh, with different cultures and backgrounds and that and that show is great because it's has really interesting complex character development rather than sort of a token black guy or a token Asian guy. You know, there's genuine, um, you know, interesting characters from like um, from different cultures. Um, because I find that sometimes people do people try and try to uh, represent uh, multicultural in the media, but not in the best way. Like you know, giving lead characters to like uh, a black person having a really good story behind them. Um, and sort of we as creative, uh, I know that create, you know, being in creative industry is mostly seen as fun, but I feel like we should feel a sense of um, power and responsibility, like the content that we put, like the artwork, make sure it's like diverse and sort of um, make it, um, I guess like, yeah, just a wider content of art and the TV shows that we put out and the work that, you know, the films that we promote and the TV shows that we make um, to push for bigger, um, yeah, like other cultures. Um, and I think, I think is already in the process right now where I think there's a lot of kids, uh, you know, students right now who are from backgrounds and I feel like hopefully there's a, this will help them to give them a lot of confidence and we as current employees of minority will push to um you know uh, lead the way hopefully so yeah um we've also got mark good. that's good um, i was going to say that i mean as far as advice goes the main again not to be too specific but try and uh there's a lovely american native american saying which is learn by doing teach by being and i can only give you experience really from what's happened what's helped me to get through and i think the main thing you're going to come up against i think the main thing that people can use to carry with them is that you have every right to be given a chance to work in that industry if that's what you want to do this isn't an industry that belongs to anybody this isn't a country that belongs to anybody England's history Great Britain's history is a history of migrants 
whether it's the Danes, the Anglo-Saxons, the Normans or the Jewits who came over when they planted their feet on the mud and they all came and mixed together. It's always been a migrant history. This country doesn't belong to any one specific person. So just because the, it changed about how people came in, they were invited in, the Commonwealth allowed them in, you still have every right to go out there and knock on that door, you know, to get a job. I'm not saying that the country owes you anything. I mean, it, it's nice to think that you can go for university and tick all the boxes and do access for effects and get a mentor and then you can hold up your CV and go, look, I passed the test. You know, it's not necessarily still going to be enough, but you still have every right to do it. So don't let anybody tell you that you're not. Um, so I just wanted to say it's um, following up from what Mark said about coming into the industry, but it's uh, the awareness as well, knowing that we as artists are here and access is here. Like it was one of my friends that let me know about your first event, as it were, where you were doing with Black Panther. And it's that kind of thing of knowing that these things exist, knowing that these artists are in the industry already, and as Hannah said as well, just knowing that there are all these ethnic minority people in the industry, other people out there, we just gotta be able to extend the network and let people know that we exist basically, and that they can get their foot in the door as well through hard work. And hard work doesn't mean, you know, like slugging from nights till day, day till night. It's about being smart as well, all right? So it's knowing how to be effective as things like that. So my last words are just network and know that you're not alone and there are people in the industry that are there to, to help you build. Fabulous, fabulous. Yes, so okay, Simon, we can wrap up now, I think. I just yeah. wanna say massive thank you to all of you. Um, thank you for taking the time to come and speak about some difficult things. I know everything is, some of it is, you know, comical but at the same time it's not comical because it's something that you've noticed that we all kind of experience and if we're experiencing and the people who are coming up after us are experiencing it as well as the people who are currently in the industry so I think my final thought would be just to echo what everyone has been saying is that um, if you are coming through the industry even if you're still in the industry you are not alone you're, you're not alone there are those of us who are working to help you there are those of us who are willing to mentor you and there are those of us who are willing to be a bit more visible so that you can see that there are people like you at at certain levels and you can continue to climb basically all right thank you everybody I'd like to throw in a couple of final points as well. Um, thank you, no, thank you everybody as well. That was uh, the easiest podcast I've ever had to host. I mean, then they literally asked one question and <laughs> two hours later, we're, uh, we're wrapping up. Um, so thank you for being so candid and, and showing such vulnerability and just being so honest as well. So um, thank you. Um, on that, um, part two maybe there's mm. so much to get through uh so, i mean oh, i think we should do it again i, I i'd yeah. like to see you all again and have fun so much everyone to bring everybody to get the team back together yeah the one yeah, thing i've been really impressed sure. with with this episode is um just the the, the range of disciplines represented mm -hmm. um for me it's i mean i'm used to i'm used to doing so many of these when it's uh artists only and to have producers to have marketeers social media experts designers students it's uh, it's a concept art have i missed anyone out um it's, no. it's so so broad so just purely as an educational piece for anybody trying to get into industry it's just this brilliant kind of tapestry of of disciplines and opportunities so cool. we've got this and the other thing was um on, on the podcast front, it'd be, i'd be remiss not to uh, shout out uh, kenny's podcast uh, culture in oh. the craft 
Um, Kenny, yeah. did you want to do a quick plug for your pod? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, kind of, I guess. Right. <laughs> we're, I mean, we're kind of on a very small hate as well. We're kind of waiting for some of the stuff to die down. But uh, yeah, we're on a, a podcast, myself, uh, Larabe, and a few others uh, on a podcast called Culture in the Craft. Um, and uh, yeah, and so basically we're just trying to, t- to discuss... Uh, things around uh ethnic minorities in the in the creative industries our challenges our stories um recommendations things that we've seen which we thought that you know could be highlighted and uh, also interviewing other artists we thought of you know have shone a light on on the issue or who we think need to be spotlighted as well Definitely check it. It's a good podcast as well. I highly recommend it. And in terms of everything we've been speaking about around CFB and role modeling, it's, a, it's definitely worth subscribing. Subscribe, rate, and review. I'm getting into the podcast hosting now, right? That's what you have to say, right? Um, and just because it's an Access VFX podcast, um, I really wanted to kind of uh, plug two uh, initiatives that are all around giving back. And if anybody listening, whether you work in industry or whether you're trying to get into industry, is the Access VFX mentoring program. Um, the good thing about it is it's, it's managed by a third party. And if you're trying to get into industry, there is a drop down um, opportunity. So if you want to be mentored by somebody from the, the, uh, the, the, the BAME, the, the black community, you can highlight that. And ditto, if you want to be a mentor, you can opt to, to mentor somebody who is um, essentially non-white. So I would urge anybody listening to get involved with that. We're always looking for more mentors, particularly if you're in industry. And I'm saying this to people on the, the pod here now, if anybody isn't currently mentoring somebody, it's a great way to, to give back. Uh, the other one is we've today we launched our um, animation uh, summer school or uh, summer of animation where there's a, uh, a wide ranging, and I should shout out uh, Screen Skills and 3D AMI as well, uh, and Tom Box who designed the, um, the website. So it's uh, the, the website, actually I should shout out two um, URLs. One is um, obviously www.accessvfx.com forward slash mentors, no org.org forward slash mentors. And for the summer school, check out um, summerofanimation.com. Um, we already have our first uh, tutorial up and because it's remote, it has such wide reach, reaching access. Um, nobody has to buy a train ticket to come to London. So from a socioeconomic diversity point of view, it's brilliant. Um, but we're looking to create, uh, it's a grassroots initiative ultimately when it comes to diversity and inclusion. So it couldn't have launched at a better time. So I really wanted to kind of plug that as well. Sorry, it's a bit waffly, but um, there are two initiatives where young people and people who want to get into industry can connect with industry off the bat. So I wanted to kind of get that out there. Um, Nene, any final words before we shut up shop? No, I think we're good. Good. Thank you again, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. And enjoy the rest of your what's no left worries. of your evenings. Yeah. Uh, that <laughs> Thanks, guys. For Kinley. Yeah. So watch out for part two. Thank you. And uh, stay tuned. Thanks, everyone. Thank you again, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 There we go. End of another Access VFX podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. To find out more about what we discussed, our mentoring program and events we're at, then head over to our website at www.accessvfx.org and follow us on social media. Big thank you for listening and until next time, bye.